Hello, everybody. My name's Tim Perko, and you're listening to I Believe. Now what? Hey, what's going on, everybody? Hope y'all are having a wonderful day out there. If you're a first-time listener or new to the show, this podcast is directed towards anybody who is a Christian, not a Christian. You could be a seasoned Christian, a brand-new Christian, but it the overall goal of this podcast is just equipping Christians with the tools needed to get out into the world and just understand what you actually believe, what the point of is of all this. We do uh, topical Bible studies, verse-by-verse Bible studies. We'll do uh, occasional sermons that I'll put up here from when I'm preaching. Uh, and we also do topical studies like we just finished up. We did a study on the Reformation, and that was the last four episodes that we did. And soon here, we're actually going to be doing an entire series on denominations and going kind of in depth in these. Now, I would like to do that denominational series, by the way, on that note, because I kept talking about it in the last few episodes, uh, but I can't do them all sequentially. So one after another, after another, after another. Reason being is just scheduling people out, finding the correct people to come in and actually talk about these denominations. uh, And it's kind of difficult with a full-time job that I have and everybody else probably has their own full-time job, getting people to come in, you know, every other day of the week to go ahead and record these. So they're probably going to be scattered around throughout the show and the podcast. But until then, we're going to keep doing what we normally do here. And today we actually have a nice verse by verse study. We're going to go ahead and look at a great chapter in the Bible, one of the chapters that I always turn to when I'm just having a hard time, and that's going to be Psalm 51. And what we're actually leading into is today's episode, we're going to start, we're going to talk about temptations. And then the next episode, we're going to go into how do Christians deal with stuff when they fail those temptations and actually give in. I don't think that's talked about enough. Uh, As Christians, we do hear a lot of sermons on why we shouldn't be led into temptation uh, and why we should not sin. And I completely agree with those wholeheartedly. Amazing messages. But it's very rarely do you hear uh, what it's like when, 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 what happens as a Christian when we fail those, when we fail the temptation, when we enter into sin. Uh, what's our response as Christians? What should it be? And obviously, this is something the Holy Spirit tells you. It's not something that I tell you. But I would like to use the Bible to go ahead and just break it down and talk about what the Bible says on these topics. How should a Christian deal with temptation? How should a Christian deal with sin inside their lives? All right. Well, with that being said, let's get into today's episode. All right, so once again, we are going to be looking at Psalm 51. Now, this psalm is a psalm of repentance by King David, David from the Old Testament, if you've ever read up in there. And it is one of the seven psalms that is known as the penitential psalms written by King David after committing adultery with Bathsheba and then, honestly, for all intents and purposes, murdering her husband, Uriah, by sending him to the front lines of war. Also... David can cover up a baby that was conceived from this adulterous relationships. And some scholars actually even argue that David may have raped her. Uh, I'm not sure where they get that from because I don't see it in the text, but I'm also not an ancient Hebrew scholar. So, hey, you know, depending on how you see it, uh, and when I say the word rape, I'm, I'm assuming it's not talking about a physical forceful rape, but more so 
the type of rape where you coerce somebody by using your position or power and intimidation factor just because of who you are. I mean, this is King David here. This man was king. And I know we always end up pointing out this story about David, even though he did so many wonderful things for God. I mean, for crying out loud, the man was known as a man after God's own heart. Uh, so he did many amazing, wonderful things, but it always seems like we always come back to this sin that had such a giant impact on his life. And like I said, such an impact that he wrote seven psalms after him, known as the penitential psalms. Now, the word penitential psalms, we get that from the word uh, penance or uh, confessing your sins. That's what uh, this name comes from. Now, I love this psalm. Because although we as Christians are changed by Jesus Christ and we, we are given the Holy Spirit of God that dwells inside of us, we sadly at times still fall to temptation. Remember, it's not a sin to be tempted, but it is a sin when you fail that temptation and you give in to the flesh. And I want to be 100% clear that even though I just said at times as Christians we fall in temptation and we fail that temptation, I want to be 100% clear. It gives us zero excuses to sin. And we should keep away from all forms of temptation. And the very reason why the Bible tells us to flee from temptation is because they know that we are going to fail it. Like our, our, we're, we're changed. We have a changed spirit, but our flesh is still of this world. And the Bible so often warns us to flee from temptation because it knows our flesh is so weak. And in that moment, we can trip up and fail. We don't thrust ourselves into temptation's way. A good analogy, maybe an extreme analogy actually would be like maybe a pastor or an evangelist goes into a strip club to try to evangelize the people there. Uh, that's probably a bad idea because you're going to see a whole bunch of naked women dancing around and that could lead to temptation and that temptation you could end up failing. So we got to stay away from temptations as Christians. We got to try to block it out as much in our lives. Whatever is tempting you, cut it off, get it out of there. I think this is the very reason why Jesus was saying, if your right arm causes you to sin, go ahead, cut it off because it, it's, it's, it's better to go ahead and just get that out of your lives than to deal with um, the sin that comes afterwards. And obviously, we can go much deeper into that passage. That passage has so much more context to it. I'm not telling anybody to cut off their hand or anything like that. But the point of the matter is, is if something is causing you to sin and something is tempting you to sin, you need to get rid of that. You need to get rid of that in your life. Now, before we look at our main text in Psalm 51... I want to highlight just a few key points on temptation. And obviously, there are probably so much more than what I'm about to point out. But these are some five main points in my studying that I really found, uh, uh, you know, really edifying. And obviously, for the purposes of this message, uh, I want to point out specifically. So number one, temptation does not come from God. It is something that comes from our sinful lust in the flesh, and at times, even Satan himself. James chapter 1, verses 13 through 14 says this on it. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Point number two. Temptation often arises from poverty 
prosperity, and the love of worldly glory. Proverbs 30 chapter or Proverbs chapter 30 verses 8 through 9 says this, remove falsehood and lies from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food allotted to me, lest I be full and deny you. And say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and then profane the name of God. Or to paraphrase, don't make me poor because I am weak and I might seek after worldly things in my despair. And that's going to put shame to you, God, because I call myself a follower. And don't make me too rich either. Because if I'm rich, then I'm going to be full of pride and greed and long after worldly things. And I'm not going to look to you to trust. I'm going to trust in my own money. But rather, give me only what I need. So that way, I can stay relying fully on you and be 100% content in you. That's what that proverb is talking about. Point number three, failing temptations leads to sin and death. James chapter 1 verses 14 through 15 says this, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when the desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin and sin when it is full grown brings forth death. Pretty self-explanatory there. Point number four, God will always provide a way out of temptation for Christians. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says this, No temptation has overtaken you, such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape, so that you may be able to bear it. Point number five. We are blessed when we resist and overcome temptations. James chapter 1 verse 12 says, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So just to shortly go back over five points. Point number one, temptation does not come from God. Point number two, temptation often arises from either poverty, prosperity, or the love of worldly glory. Point number three, failing temptations leads to sin and death. Point number four, God will always provide a way out of temptation for Christians. And point number five, we are blessed when we resist and overcome those temptations. Now, as much as I would love to just keep diving into all the reasons why we should resist temptations and how as a Christian we are a new creation in Christ Jesus, who has the ability through the Holy Spirit to resist and overcome those temptations, I said, like I said in the beginning, I really want this message to focus on what happens when we fail and our proper response in these temptations, what it should be. And this is going to sound very similar to what I'm going to talk about in the next episode on failing sin, but there is a difference between temptations and sin. And obviously when we fail that temptation, it becomes a sin. I'm going to, it all makes sense in the end. So trust me, it might sound very similar, but they are two different topics. Now, through all my studying in the Bible, I've come across three different types of people when it comes to failing temptations. The first one is the non-believer. This non-believer may admit to their unbelief, like an atheist or something like that, or they may think of themselves as a believer when in fact they are not. Oh my gosh, Tim, did you just say that? Yeah. Sadly, there are people out there who profess to know Christ, but do not 
actually know him and are not saved. These types of people, uh, both ones that we just talked about, the atheist and the false believer, these types of people deal with temptation based on the morals that they grew up in. They don't look to the word of God, and they usually end up failing the temptations because there's nothing other than themselves or the circumstances around them from stopping them or giving them a way out. So in other words, these people, either a non-believer, like an atheist, or a non-believer who believes they're a believer, but they're actually not, they don't turn to Scripture. They don't turn to Scripture for the answers. They don't uh, look to God through prayer and the Bible. Instead, they're basing everything off of the morals that they have when they've grown up. And morals do play a big role. I took a psychology class uh, when I was in college, and it was very interesting. It was just your basic psychology 101. But one of the things that I'll always remember is they said, based upon studies, that the average human, by the time they are 10 years old, they have developed all the morals that they are going to have for the rest of their life. And anything that, that's going to change that has to be something crazy or dramatic has to happen to them, like you know, believing in Christ <laughs> or uh, you know, some type of crazy incident inside their life uh, outside of that. They're stuck pretty much in those morals that they grew up with. That's why it's so important between those ages that we raise our kids in Christ and we raise our kids with good biblical knowledge, knowing what the Bible says and on how to work on these issues. Now, there's nothing else stopping them besides those morals that they grew up with from failing those temptations. It could be, oh, my parents said this was bad and it was going to be bad for me, so I better not do this. Or, Like I said before, the outside circumstances around them. So let's take stealing, for instance. This person would not, uh, would pass a temptation and not be overcome by it because they know the threat of going to jail or being arrested or anything like that. If they stole this, uh, it's preventing them from doing it. That's an outside influence preventing you from falling into that sin. The second type of person when it comes to dealing with uh, temptations, is a true believer. But one who is very weak in faith and who is failing temptation and ignoring the chastening of the Holy Spirit. And yes, I know this is a debated topic and it can be controversial at times, but overall, this, this the, the Bible does give examples of this. And we're going to go talk about this. Some may call these people carnal Christians. And once again, I know that is a very taboo topic. Can a Christian actually be carnal? I I said it before, I do believe the Bible talks about this. Um, And it's something worth noting. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 says this about it. It is actually reported, this is Paul's letter to the Corinthians, by the way. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And a kind of that that is not even tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife. So in other words, what he's saying is there is a man sleeping with or married or something, having some type of relationship with his father's wife. And not in a good way. It's sad. He continues on in verse 2 and says, And you, the church, are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. He's saying kick them out of the church. Get them out. For though absent in the body, I am present in the spirit, as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are all, 
assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that way his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So what Paul is saying here is this person who is a part of the church, he's committing this horrible sin that's just, you know, Paul says it's not even tolerated even among pagan people. But you're allowing this to happen inside the church. You need to kick him out. We are to deliver him, he even says, over to Satan. So that way his flesh can be destroyed, but his spirit could yet be saved. Obviously, if he wasn't a true Christian, his spirit would not actually be saved. But this is, like I said, this is, this is, this kind of describes this carnal Christian that we hear about. And this type of Christian is absolutely useless to God on this earth. And because of his destructive ways, the reason why he's useless is because of these destructive ways. It's because he is so engrossed in his sin, he no longer has a testimony that's worth looking at. God will take this person from this earth early. Use Satan, just as the verse says, to correct this person's ways or pretty much even kill this person. Uh, in, in order to for God to go ahead and bring him up to heaven uh, and, and pretty much so he does no more earthly damage down here in a way. And I know, once again, that's a debated topic and scriptures aren't 100% clear on it, but I think this passage gives the best example of that. Now, I know we're only on the second type of Christian here, but now I hope none of you guys listening here would say, well, I'm okay to be that carnal Christian because I'm saved and I'm going to, you know, keep doing what I do. But I know I'm saved. No, if you're saying that to yourself, then you're probably just completely unsaved in the first place or very, very, very confused. Uh, I think this carnal Christian, this is just a personal opinion, but by all my readings that I've done, this is a very rare, rare thing. This is not something that is going on in masses. You're either saved or you're not saved. And if you're saved, your life is going to produce fruits. This type of carnal Christian stops producing fruits, becomes useless to God, and God will take this person from the earth early because there's no reason for them to be here. Us as Christians have a reason to be here, and that is to spread the good news of Jesus Christ through our testimony, through what we're doing, the things we say, the way we act, how we work, how we carry ourselves. We are a testimony to God, and God uses that for his good purpose. But if you're absolutely useless like this Christian, the second type of person who deals with temptation and fails temptation, um, you're useless. You're useless to God. All right, enough on the second person, Tim. (laughs) The third type here now is a true believer, a true believer who delights in the Lord and takes God's word seriously. And I pray that every single one of you are this type here. When this person fails... They feel horrible about it. It's like a knife was plunged into their chest and they cry out to God, just as the tax collector did in Luke, uh, where he says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Or when Paul wrote on the topic of the war between the flesh and spirit in Romans 7, which is we're going to get into next week or next episode, where Paul writes out, oh, wretched man that I am. Or the example that we are going to look at today in Psalm 51. Now, I know that was the longest introduction ever to (laughs) examining a Bible passage, 
Uh, maybe not. If you're a fan of John MacArthur, that guy can go two hours on an introduction before actually getting to the verse. But <laughs> I love John MacArthur's messages, by the way, not hating on him. Uh, but I really wanted to keep this in context about temptation to you and just kind of paint the picture and set the stage and make it very clear uh, on what our response should be when we sin and when we fail these temptations. Read with me now if you have your Bible available. If not, you're just going to have to take my word for it and then double check me later, especially if you're driving. Don't bust out that phone or Bible while you're driving. But read with me in Psalms 51, verses 1 through 17. And as we read, I want you to just try to imagine the pain that David was in when he wrote this. And I'm going to say this a little dramatic. Uh, I've gone over this chapter before uh, on this podcast. I'm going to try to say, point this out the best possible way that I can, the way that I really feel David was saying this, uh, using the exact words of the scripture. And as we go through, I'm going to break away from time to time and explain these passages as we go on. Starting at verse 1, Psalm 51, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness and according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Blot out. That means completely get rid of, make it so it never happened again. Wash me thoroughly, in verse 2, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. See, he's acknowledging that God is the only one who can cleanse him from this sin. Verse 3, I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. His sin is ever before him. He can't go to sleep. He can't eat. He can't do whatever without just seeing this sin in front of him, this horrible actions that he did between the adultery and the murder and the conceiving a baby out of this. It's just he can't get away from it. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt that way about something? You just can't get it out of your head. You see it everywhere you go. You become paranoid. It's all over the place. He acknowledges his sin. And he can't get rid of that feeling. Verse 4, against you and only you, Lord, have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you might be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. He just keeps acknowledging that he was wrong, he was wrong, he was wrong. And he was sinning not just against the people here, but against the Lord. Against you and you only have I sinned. Because who else was Uriah? Who else was Bathsheba besides the creations of the Lord? Verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. I was born into the sin. That's what he's saying. I was born into sin. I was conceived in sin. Sin is a part of our everyday lives. It's in our DNA, in this nasty, disgusting flesh that desires the things of the world. That's what he's saying in verse 5. Verse 6, Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. He's talking about his spirit there. You desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part, you will make me know wisdom. He's talking about his spirit. Verse 7, purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones that you have broken, God, may rejoice. The bones that you have broken, 
He understands that when God is just chastening you and the Holy Spirit is chastening you, it's making you feel the weight of your sin. He wrote in one of those other Psalms how it feels like God's hand is just heavy pressing down on him. He's saying, let the bones that you have broken, God, rejoice. He he knows God punishes when we do wrong and tries to correct us just like a loving father does. Verse 9, hide your face from my sins, blot out my iniquities. There's that word again, blot out, blot out. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. That, if you ever failed in temptation and you kept failing over and over and over again, and you just felt so far away from God, that's what David is describing here. He doesn't want that. Because ultimately, what is hell going to be? It's going to be separation from God. And that's honestly the scariest part about hell, in my opinion. Verse 12, restore to me the joy, the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open up my lips and my mouth shall show forth your praise. He said he can't even talk. He doesn't feel right even acknowledging God, talking to God, because he just feels so disgusted by his sin. He's asking God, open up my lips. It almost reminds me of an Isaiah where he was going before the angels and he said, woe is me for I am ruined when he just caught a glimpse of God and the angel came over with a coal and put it on his lips to cleanse him recognizes how horrible he is, how horrible his sin is. Verse 16, for you do not desire, and this is key here, remember this, this is key. Verse 16, for you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offerings, but the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Say that again. Verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. And mind you, this is the Old Testament. This is back in the sacrificial system where you had to do sacrifices for temporary sins. And here's David in verse 16 is saying, you don't have to leave in delight. You don't even delight in these burnt offerings, Lord. What you truly desire is a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart when you know that you are a sinner. You are not worthy of God. When you understand that you cannot do this on your own, you are not the person that you need to be. Only God can give that to you. Only God can cleanse you from those sins. Only God can save you. And you have absolutely nothing to do with it. This is how a true Christian feels when he fails temptation. Broken spirit, broken and contrite heart. Now, obviously, as Christians, we don't live in that place of brokenness after we sin. 
We know we're under grace. We know we're forgiven. But at the same time, if you're sinning so much to the point where you are just saying, oh, Lord's going to forgive me. I'm in grace. And you have no brokenness over that. You really need to examine yourself. And that's going to go ahead and lead us into our next episode. So stay tuned for that one as we talk about the Christian and sin and temptation. Specifically in that episode, we're going to go over the response of a Christian when they fail in sin. If you would, bow your heads with me. And if you're driving, obviously, don't bow your head and close your eyes. But I'm going to go ahead and end out in a prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that this message just reached out to anybody who needed to hear it, Lord. I pray that you can use this message in whatever way. And I pray if I said anything that was not something glorifying you, Lord, and it was not something that you meant to be taught, Lord, I pray that you blot that out and from, from, from their memories, that they won't remember it, Lord. I pray this message was 100% based on you, that the study time I put in for this, Lord, was 100% for you and for nothing else. And I pray that the listeners, Lord, are just growing from it and learning from it and rejoicing knowing that you are God and we are not. Thank you, Lord, for all that you do. In Jesus' name we pray. Your will alone. Amen.